0: We are committed to amplifying the voices of people who are dedicated to Jesus and to justice. All right, look at this, and uh, Reverend Sharon uh, Risher is our book club book of the month that we've been doing together and she didn't know that reverend michael waters is going to surprise (laughs) photo bombers right here reverend sharon how about that
1: hey mike how
2: you doing oh what an honor what a privilege thank you shane for the opportunity just to pop in
0: oh man well that's definitely a
1: surprise that's an early birthday present for me
0: that's what I'm talking about. July 10th is Reverend Sharon's birthday. She didn't know Michael was coming, but uh, Reverend Michael Waters a close friend, of course, to all of us at Red Letter Christians, and a dear friend, Reverend Risher. He did the foreword to our book that we're talking about tonight for such a time as this, and uh, is going to kick us off with prayer, but obviously um, bring us a little fire and a little word first. Let me just say what, I'm going to read uh, What the th- these beautiful words about you, uh, Reverend Michael, in, in the book. It says, Mike is the most pastoral person I know. This is Reverend Risher. Thank you for all you have contributed in making this book real. Mike's brilliance in preaching, writing, and taking care of people through his social justice activism is beyond measure. I'm grateful for the relationship we have as friends and colleagues. Thank you for all you do for the kingdom. And so uh, we asked him to join us tonight just to kind of introduce the evening and, and uh, kick us off in prayer. Hey, buddy, thanks for doing it.
2: Thank you, Shane. Uh, You know, there was nothing I could think of that would bring me greater joy on this evening than the opportunity to join you, but also to uh, lift up our dear friend, and in fact, the champion for justice across this nation, the Reverend Sharon Richard. I will tell you with all certainty, I don't know many persons more courageous and more true than Reverend Sharon Richard. As I mentioned in the forward, really no one ever signs up for the path that she has walked over the last several years. No one aspires to that role and responsibility, to that mantle. In fact, many would reject it if it was given to them. Somehow, by the power of God, Sharon not only accepted that mantle and accepted that responsibility, but has carried us forward in ways that are transforming our nation. I don't think it hyperbole to say that we owe a debt of gratitude to Reverend Sharon, even in the most recent passage of this new gun reform bill. Certainly there's more to achieve. Certainly there are many more bridges to cross, but we would not be where we are today as a nation without her courageous efforts and so many others who have taken the tragedies that have befallen them and have used them to help bend the arc of the moral universe towards justice, knowing that it does not bend itself. I'm also grateful because Sharon, as we get ready to pray for me, is an authentic example of Christian forgiveness. I'm grateful that she did not rush to that point. So many of us feel that we have to rush to a point that we're not ready to be. And yet she took her time with God and journeyed, I think in a very helpful, healthy, and courageous way to the point that she would not allow hate to harbor in her heart and was able to forgive an individual who had caused her great harm. I'm grateful for that. To me, that's an authentic aspect of uh, forgiveness, and I'm certain that you will talk about it this evening. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for your presence and for your power and for the ability to access you as we open our mouths in prayer. God, we thank you for Shane and red-letter Christians and for the platform and work in which they do in the world to emphasize the truth of Jesus, to lift Jesus up, knowing that when we lift Jesus up, Jesus has a capacity to draw all people unto him. We thank you for Sharon Risher, for her witness, for her testimony, for her mighty voice. And we pray, dear God, that as they dialogue together about this tremendous book for such a time as this hope and forgiveness after the Charleston massacre, that all of us will be encouraged and inspired to make a difference in our day and in the days that you have given to us. We pray this prayer collectively in Jesus' name, amen.
1: Amen. Amen.
0: Amen. Amen. Thank you, my brother. And uh hang out as long as you can. We'll we'll see you. Thanks so much for being here.
1: Thank you, Mike. Mike, I I'm listening to you and I'm saying, Lord, he's talking about me. Cause I never <laughs> you, know, you know, really, because <laughs> I I don't know. I just I don't know. Mm-hmm. I just don't know. <laughs> we're going
0: we're going to talk more about him we're going to we're going we're going to talk some some more smack about uh, reverend michael in a little bit because he he was a real pastor to you through all of this and yeah. uh you you write about that in your book but i just want to welcome everybody tonight it's going to be such a special night y'all uh th- there are few people that that every time I'm with them, I feel like I've, I've hung out with Jesus and, uh, and, and Reverend Sharon and I have had a lot of time together over the past few years. And, um, this is the book that she wrote. Um, I know not all of you have had a chance to read it, but I really hope you will. Um, I, I we're going to have this book available on the raw tools website. It's going to take me a week or so to figure out how to do that, <laughs> but we're going to leave it up because I want everybody that can to read this book. And it's not just about the, uh, the, 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 the tragedy, uh, you know, at Emmanuel AME, it's about her life. It's about grace and Jesus and, and, uh, this kind of resilient faith, I mean, and we're going to talk about it tonight, so even if you didn't do your homework and read it, it's for such a time as this, hope and forgiveness after the Charleston massacre, and uh, Reverend Michael wrote the foreword, uh, so first of all, thanks Reverend Sharon for letting us do your book this month, and for you are we, we've done a whole bunch of stuff together, but every chance we can, I just love hanging out with you, so thanks for well, carving thank out some time you always, tonight.
1: Thank uh, always, Shane, for inviting me to be a part of the uh, book of the month. You know, I don't take this for granted that uh, I I would be here, you know. Uh, sometimes the flavor you think you are are not the flavor for somebody else. So mm-hmm. I'm just uh, humbled. That uh, there are some people out there that are willing to uh, listen to what I have to say, and that uh, I try to be authentic, you know. And because the writing of this book was really hard,
0: mm-hmm. you
1: know, telling yeah. of personal things. And um, when I thought about the book and all of that, um, I asked my kids, and my son said to me, Ma, don't write this book if you're not gonna tell the truth. Wow. Not that I would not gonna tell the truth, but I would not gonna tell the truth the way I told the truth. How about that? <laughs> you know, I do have a theological education. I think I could uh, flip some words around and and clean it up a little bit. But
0: <laughs> I well, th- that's a good place to start because I, you know, on this there's this one quote I highlight, I mean, I highlighted a lot, but this one on page 27, where you said, you said exactly that you said, I really do hate to put all of our business out there like this. <laughs> you know. But then you go on. And this book is so honest. And I mean, you say, people always say I have no gre- regrets. And you say, well, hell, yeah, you have regrets. Everyone has some things they regret. And you're very honest about um, some of the the, the questions, the doubts, the struggles, even the, the decisions that you made that you've, you know, tried to try to heal some of those wounds. But we're, I think this is exactly the kind of book that a lot of people are looking for, because what became clear to me is that that most people are not looking for Christians that are perfect. They're looking for Christians that are honest. And it's hard to find folks that'll really be as honest as you are in your book. So I don't know if you want to say more about that, but uh the whole book is uh so raw, uh in the best kind of way, you know. I mean it, it uh but um yeah, you don't hold back. Well, so you, you you honored your kids wish on that, didn't you?
1: Well, you know, <laughs> but I you know after putting the book out, you know, I thought a lot of things came at me after I wrote the book and uh, my children, you know, people that knew them would really get a look into w- who their their mother was. You know, a lot of them had said, "Wow, I didn't never know that was going on with your parents. I thought they were the coolest bunch of people on earth." When behind closed doors, there was a whole nother ball game going yeah. on. But I heard a sermon this morning, and it talked about how low God will. Bend down to pick you up. Mm, mm, mm. And so I believe uh, people that have been saved by God's Jesus salvation Mm. have a duty to be able to have that courage, Mm, mm. to be able to put it all out there because people need to know, regardless of what they think, they're not the only ones and that there is nobody perfect on this earth. And I wanted the people who read my book to know that this came from my heart and it wasn't just something that, um, I thought I was gonna make a whole lot of money about it and I was gonna get a film deal and all of that. (laughs) No, it wasn't like that at all. (laughs) But I just knew that, uh, I always knew that there was a story in me. Yeah and it took the murder of my mother for God to open up things in me that I suppressed yeah. or didn't realize I had. The courage to just get out there and really talk about how I really feel and the struggles I went through.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Mm. So, you know, spread yeah, read and- the gospel, your life, your life is your gospel.
0: Yeah, <laughs> that's it. And and in case folks, uh, you know, for folks that didn't read the book, that this is, um, I mean, you, you really f- help us get to know your mom a little bit. And uh, uh, Ethel Lance uh, was, of course, Sharon's mom. And she was uh, one of the nine folks murdered in Emanuel AME. This month is the anniversary of... Uh, that terrible incident, and um, so there's a lot you've been processing. But that that all, along with being gun, you know, gun violence prevention month, I got my orange on. We've been doing a lot around gun violence. But you know, sometimes we we you hear the names of of the folks who died, and it's hard to know you know who they were exactly. And you do such a good job, you know, uh, telling us about your mother, and you you describe her as you know formidable a uh, stern kind of matriarch of your family, not, not really a softie, but also someone that was cracking folks up. You said she would take a plastic bag to a, a buffet so she could take some food Gold, home. The,
1: <laughs> Golden Corral. Golden Corral. Now, get it straight. Golden Corral.
0: I know the Golden Corral. Yeah, we got one right <laughs> up the street here. You do want to take a bag with you to bring some stuff home. Uh, but she was, you come from from that that same strong matriarchal you know faith and and tell us a little bit more for folks that you know maybe haven't read the book a little bit more about your mom and cuz she's such a central part of your life and of, of you know all through your book
1: well first of all Shane um to be able to really tell my mother's story and my story I had to kind of put out the brutal truth The truth that I I didn't even find out until I was, what, 54, 56 years old. And uh, the the origin of my birth, I was told one thing all my life and then come to find out that uh, I was a product of rape. And that was kind of hard to digest. So the rape, that violence that was uh, put upon my mother by... Um, white men in Charleston, South Carolina, back in 1957, was something that she was dare not. She was not going to report. Being a black woman, she was not going to report that. Mm. Now, hmm, mm.
0: yeah, I was just didn't try to, to
1: abort me. Yeah
0: yeah, you know?
1: yeah, yeah, hey, you know what I'm saying? She didn't. Yeah, yeah. But maybe. If she had had the opportunity, I might not have been here, but guess what? If she had made that decision she made, she would have made that decision for herself. Hmm. So I wouldn't have blamed her if she had had that opportunity, but guess what, she didn't. Yeah. In 1958, I was born in South Carolina being biracial, All of that was something that my mother dealt with in her life and to be able to know within her heart that uh, what she had been through was not her destiny. And with the help of her mother, who died when I was a senior in high school, together they made sure Mm
2: -hmm. that
1: I had the opportunity to dream a little further than them. Mm -hmm. My mother made sure of that, you know, she went back to high school and got her high school diploma, you know, because she wanted better. And so with being formidable, yeah, she wasn't warm and fuzzy, but her love language was the way that she took care of you, the way she tried to make sure that I wanted a clarinet and the pawn shop didn't have a clarinet so they bought a flute and said, here, play this. (laughs) You know what? I wanted a clarinet. But this is the kind of people, the kind of mother along with my stepdad that wanted more and if you had the capacity of wanting more for yourself, they were going to try to provide a way to have it. Yeah. So, yeah.
0: And and you had you know you're you, growing up you 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 talk about it wasn't real easy you you felt a lot of love from your mom your uh, your they worked really hard to make sure you had everything you had but you were you talk about sleeping in the same uh, bed, bed with, with Esther. Esther and yeah and all
1: this, all oh business. man I hated to put her business out like that but I tell you
0: it was. She had a little well, bed wetting problem. We found later found out it was a kidney problem. You said, but yeah, before right. that, it was. But still,
1: you know, ooh. <laughs>
0: and but but it you know it wasn't easy. But it felt you get a real sense that your family was you were making it through together.
1: That's the way things were, you know, two people in a bed back then. Yeah. And so you know that was just one of the ills that I had to deal with. But you get no closer to somebody than laying in their pee. How much closer can you get?
0: (laughs) So So it's y'all were tight, and and now you and you didn't really grow up going to church per se. It was uh, your friend that started taking you to church, and that's when you got Jesus, as you say. And you you talk a little bit (laughs) about that.
1: Okay, so uh, we called the granny, my girlfriend Jewel. We went to the same yeah. elementary school that's right across the street from Emmanuel AME Church. That's the school we went to, and um, no, we didn't go to church. But I was hanging out with them, and they would go to church on Sunday. And Granny said, "You need to start going to church. You over here with us all the time. You need to go to church." So okay. I tell mama I got to get dressed to go to church because I want to go, so mama got me dressed, made sure I looked nice and everything, and I started going to a little small church, uh, Macedonia AME Church with them. And um, one thing, you know, I never thought about being poor or anything, never in my mind I thought I was poor, but being in that church always gave me a sense of peace. Yeah. And I always felt like, you know, when they would talk about God, that God was definitely in this place. And I wanted to show God that I was special. So I wanted to, you know, they always called on me to read scripture because I read so well. And I always wanted to do good with that. But church, that when being that young, church I knew was a special place. And I wanted to please God. Yeah.
0: And and you, you knew how to read scripture well, but you're, you're like me. You didn't hit all the notes perfect in the choir, but you still said, I'm going to sing in the choir. Yeah, you, surely.
1: You... Exactly. <laughs> I'm uh, uh. <laughs> at St. Paul Presbyterian Church in Charlotte, North Carolina, where I really started ministry. I was in the choir and they were like, Sharon, you sure you want to join? I, I'm joining the choir. So they stuck me in the back. I was an alto, but I was back there getting it. You know, I was at all the choir rehearsals, I was there. They couldn't get rid of me. So I know
0: that's right. I did I did that in youth group too. I can't sing a lick. I can't read music, but I wanted to go on all the youth group trips. So you had to be in the <laughs> choir. So that's how I started preaching, Reverend Sharon. They were like, "Please don't sing just lip sync on the songs and you can do the devotional." So those were my first uh sermons were in the youth group choir. Uh but then you, you know, so you started cutting your teeth a little bit in the in the church and uh and then you you talk about a a little bit about your your call to ministry because it came and i think it's helpful for people to see that this wasn't like just one moment where you figured it all out you (laughs) you wanted to be a lawyer you wanted to go to law school and you're making it through like every obstacle imaginable and you end up really kind of discerning oh we're all still I, discerning it right but you begin right. to feel this call to ministry right well
1: a lot of that came in the mix of uh my marriage really uh going downhill and my girlfriend Anita inviting me to go to this all black Presbyterian church with her where she was going and then I started to go to church with her and it, it was just something about that church that uh I felt at home like I did when I was young at Macedonia AME Church. Hmm. And so I started to drag the kids, Brandon and Asia, they they were like maybe 11 and 14 or whatever. So I would drag the, them to church with me and they were reading scripture too. And then I started teaching Bible study. And then I got the job with the Presbytery of Charlotte. Yeah. And that really opened me up to Presbyterianism and Calvin and uh, really what the church was about. And um, having all these resources around me, I just went, it was like, wow. Mm-hmm. And um, Dr. Thomas, who was the associate presbyter, he had been watching me and he said, have you ever thought about going into ministry? And I'm looking at him like, what? Sir, if you know what I've been through in my life, because I went through a time when there was drug abuse, and I'm going to just put it out there. It was. It was a time of um, lots of challenges, and 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 um, not having a job, and two teenage children. I didn't have a car. I knew I needed to get out of my marriage, and oh, man, all hell was going on with me, but the one constant that was in the mix of all of that was that St. Paul Presbyterian Church. Mm, mm. Where in the midst of all I was going through, that place was a haven for me.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: So that's where the ministry for me start in that, in that church, in that church. Getting involved in uh, teaching Sunday school, getting involved in the Presbyterian Women Organization and you know, going to all the presbytery meetings cause I was on staff and I put all of that stuff together. So um, I realized that I did have gifts.
0: Yeah. Well, I know that's, I, I'm so thankful you answered that call and you're still answering that call, but you kind of figured it out, right? So you ended up down in Texas, you're going to seminary. You said, you. Uh, this is what I love. Cause I took Greek and it's hard. <laughs> it is so hard. It's so much memorizing. Uh, uh, and and so you took Greek twice and you took Hebrew three times. Isn't that what you did? Right, Jane,
1: right. <laughs> hey, let me tell you. Last weekend, Lord help for, us for the Bible study. Last Friday, they were all of these scholarly folks, Princeton Theological, and yada yada. And you know me, I was like, ooh, uh, maybe I should have had you as a teacher because. Hebrew three times, told New Testament lady, Greek, Hebrew, they looking at me. I'm like, man that was some of the hardest thing I ever did in my life. Yeah. but um,
0: But I'm thinking about it you, I mean so this, you're like one of the first in your family to go to college. And one of the things that struck me was did, did I get this right that when you graduated high school, your mom had gone back and gotten her degree too, right? So y'all yes. graduated, you got your high school diploma. In the same Along with my school, mom. Sure
1: did. She so, went to adult school and I went to day school.
0: And you push through. You're going to seminary. You're getting through Hebrew three times. You're working on all the finances. You got every obstacle we can imagine. But you have people that are walking with you. And that's one of the lessons that you kind of hear all through the book. And in the end, uh, you know, you give all these lessons that you've learned over time. And one of them is that you're, you're you're not alone. You can't heal on your own. You can't make it through life on your own. And, you know, one of those, I think, was Reverend James Lee, right? But there's others that were in the seminary that kind of helped get through. And even with ordination, you ended up going to a different place to get ordination because the Presbyterians had all kinds of rigmarole and whatnot. But you found your way, right? Yeah. And then you're so you're you ended up being a chaplain. And I think this is what's so important is that this is before the you know the incident at Emmanuel, it's before uh, gun violence kind of drafted you into the movement mm-hmm. like it has now with the death of your mom and your family. Um, but you were seeing people who were devastated by uh, gun violence by rape, right? Like so many of the things that you had made it through addiction, Mm -hmm. all these lives and all of as like Henry, Henry Nowen says we're wounded healers, right? Right, Our our stars are not our liabilities. They're our credentials. And so those things that you had made it through are actually the tools that you're using to connect with people that might be intimidated by all the people with the Princeton degrees and a fancy collar and you're able to just sit there with them, right? And so I can only I'm trying to imagine you in that in that trauma unit at you know Parkland Hospital, y'all, and she's just walking with people through their grief, right? So this is all a part of your ministry, right? As you're, you're finding You know that
1: what? Way. I look at all of this now, Shane. Everything that I went through, you know what was preparing me for this? Yes. Because everything mm-hmm.
0: For such a time as this, y'all,
1: yep. Every, everything I had to get past to keep going were the tools that I was going to need to walk through such tragedy and grief hmm. when that thing happened in that church. Because let me tell you, you don't get through something like that unless you have a faith a community of people you 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 can't there's no way it the that kind of tragedy is a bombardment of the soul and the psychic that have you so off-kilter yeah you have to make yourself eat and make yourself bathe, and your brains are still trying to compute all of these things, and then you're trying to make decisions. So, the perseverance, being faithful, understanding that I'm no better than anybody else, yeah. All the seeds that was dropped in me by those black teachers, by me hearing Dr. Martin Luther King when I was nine, all of those things gave me what I needed to be on the platform that God has allowed me mm. to be on.
0: Mm.
1: Mm. Some days it's good, some days it's bad, but... Uh, Here I'm we humbled. are. Yeah. yeah. I'm humble,
0: And, you know, before we get to June 17th, the, the, the other thing I realized as I was reading your book, I'd heard some of this backdrop, but is that Emmanuel AME had its own story of survival, right? I mean, you had your story, but this right. was not, this wasn't just, I mean, the whole history of the AME church is a, a story of liberation and uh, and breaking the chains of oppression. Uh, but in particular, you know, uh, Emmanuel AME, founded in 1818, I think it was, right? And you talk about the story of uh, Denmark Vesey, one of the founders of that church, who was actually executed, Mm -hmm. right? He was killed, and the church was burnt down. I mean, this is all the historic backdrop, right, of racism and oppression that is over 100 years, you know, almost 200 years before the incident, you know, in 2015. So, You want to say anything more about that? I mean, uh, about Emanuel A.M.E. and um, that history before we get to you know June 17th.
1: Well, you know, you talked about the history of Denmark VC and what he they went through and the burning of that church, but the tenacity of the people. Yeah. To to rebuild the church, the tenacity from uh, slaves being brought to that city dark people that made the city what it is. Mm. The people that fed and built the fine homes and all of that. All of that uh, history of African and Charleston and all of that talks to a people of faith. A people of faith that believed, they believed in something more than any kind of oppression. Could beat them with. Come on. And so the same thing with now with Emmanuel. That massacre that happened in that church, their bloods are in every crack, everything in that fellowship hall.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: That Ooh. keeps that church. That's keep that church going, because no matter what we you spill our blood, but guess what, we still standing.
0: Come on, come on, sister. And you no, know, I was even thinking of that church we were at just a few weeks ago. Reverend Sharon and I were in Savannah, Georgia, and in a historic, yes, very uh, historic uh, African American church there, and they told us the story that to this day. There are tunnels underneath the church and you can see the holes in the floor of the church because folks would crawl down into the tunnels, crawl under the city of Savannah and get to the water. I got chill bumps on my arm as we think about it. And they would go to Florida because we think of the Underground Railroad as going to Canada. But Florida was a, a sovereign uh, place because the spanish owned it and so you just had to get to florida and so literally there were underground tunnels that came out of the historic church that we were in and people were freed from slavery and that i mean that i think all of that is part of this context right That this is the 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 hatred and the violence that happened uh that took your mom's life and your loved ones like your friends your cousins and the other uh, you know, the, the, all nine of the folks there, um, it had that backdrop, right? And this new iteration of racism and white supremacy of somebody so young, right? And we'll try to say his name as little as possible, but this uh, young man radicalized with hatred. And you said in your book, you just wondered, how did he get filled with so much hatred uh, at such a young age? And so he goes in, you know, after posing with Confederate flags and all kinds of stuff and goes into the prayer meeting on Wednesday night and, um, and was there for a full hour. I mean, it also is a testament of, of their faith and hospitality to welcome this young white man that they don't know. And, uh, and then he pulls out a gun and, and, uh, and took all those lives. And and so you're in Texas as you hear that and you go through the process. And by the way, y'all, I, I feel like we can talk about some of this because Reverend Sherry and I, we've known each other for a while and she writes all about it in the book. So, um, but you go through the, the process of being absolutely uh, in shock, um, not being able to get out of bed for two days, having a lot of like, I can only imagine really complicated relationships. You know, one of the bishops wants you to do a press conference and you're like, listen, I can hardly breathe right now. You know, I, I'm not ready to do a press conference, but you're you're navigating all of these complexities. And eventually, I mean, you tell it yourself, but you you just basically have to pull out and get there to be with your kids. Right. To be there uh, with, with your family and your and your children in, in particular, as you uh, figure out exactly what had happened. Right.
1: Um, getting the phone call while I was at work, I was at work. I worked the three d eleven shift, and um uh, oh, I had been working with a family whose granddad had died, and um, they knew he was dying, so they were, you know, they were kind of stoic, it wasn't a whole lot of crying, they kind of knew, you know, granddad had a good life, okay, he gone, okay, you know. And so, that's how it went, but for some reason, I did not have my death paperwork, and that's something that I very rarely would not have. I had left my telephone on my charger, something said, check the phone, I had several missed calls from my daughter and i'm like something's going on mm. i called my daughter she said mom i got a call from my nephew in charleston John Quill. something's going on at the church and i'm like what church she said granny's church she said i I don't know what's happening. John Quill said they don't know, but something's going on. I'm like, okay, okay. Let me go and try to call mom or somebody and I'll get back with you. Now my brains just like, wait a minute. I got the people upstairs. I got to go deal with them. So I get back upstairs. I swear to God, I rushed those people out of that hospital. Mm. I felt guilty about that, but I got them out of there, got the paperwork signed, got back downstairs in the conference room in the corner where you can get a signal and started making phone calls first phone call I called my mom's cell phone which she never knew how to get messages so if she didn't answer that phone you were out of luck cuz there wasn't no voicemail so she didn't answer I kept calling back to back she didn't answer I called my nephew back well they're at the church uh, there have been a shooting, but they don't really know. So everybody knows automatically that Mama's at the church because that's where she's going to be every day at the church, whatever is going on. Ethel is opening the doors, closing up the church at night. So we all automatically know if something crazy has happened in that church, Ethel's is in that church. Mm, mm, mm. <sighs> Finally about, I guess, now we in Texas time, we in Central time, maybe about 9, 30, 10 o'clock, I decided I couldn't get a hold of anybody. My voice, I called my sister Nadine. She didn't know anything. She said, well, uh, I didn't have the TV on. Let me put some clothes on to so all these calls. And I finally got sick of being at the hospital. I told the guy I worked with, I said, I gotta go home. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm, I'm getting out the hospital, I, I, I just have this bad feeling. I mean, it's just so much to talk about. I, I, I yeah. can't put myself right there again, Shane.
0: No, don't do it, yeah,
1: yeah. I, I, I can't, I, but I think... I, you know, after seven years, you know, they said spiritually seven is a year of completion. Yeah. Mama would have would be 77 years old August yeah. 30th if she had lived. So I think I've got to the point where I don't have to tell the story anymore. That's I don't right. have to tell the details anymore. Yeah. I'm not going to put myself through that. Um, yeah,
0: I, I think that one of the things that I've heard you tell the stories, you know, plenty of times, but I think one of the things that struck me as I was reading the book Fresh uh, this week was all the things that we don't think about that mm-hmm. th- there's the tragedy. I mean, the, the unspeakable, unimaginable thought of getting a call that someone you love has been killed, especially in such a horrible, avoidable Act of violence like what you experienced, but then you get to the funeral and you write about you're trying to come up with three thousand dollars because you got to feed three hundred families. You're trying to pay for the funeral, and I I've seen that in my neighborhood all the time. Not only do you have something you're trying to grieve and even just wake up and get out of bed, but you're having to raise money to pay for a funeral. You're trying to weigh out all these different, and for you, you're weighing out all these different political things there's cameras everywhere there's struggles in your own family that people are traumatized and they're i'm sure just trying to figure out how are we going to pull this off when none of us want we didn't choose this you know (laughs) like like and and yet um you all made it through and you thank your mother that like her death was not in vain and you talk about how the confederate flag came down in south carolina and you're you know you're Uh, spending time with Michelle and Barack Obama and even talking about what kind of cologne he wore.
1: Right, right.
0: (laughs) in a buffet at the White House. What's
1: the main thing you remember about Obama? How good he smelled. How good he smelled. Oh, my God. It's like, this is how presidents smell. Oh, my God. If I could ever find that cologne, I'm going to wear it. I'm telling you. I'm
0: going to find out what kind it was, and I'm going to get you (laughs) some so you can have some Obama cologne. But, you know, you mentioned how... uh, real he was and he just spent you know uh almost a half hour with you all and you ended up going on a second trip up to the white house and uh but i think uh we might have a little clip of that sermon i mean i thought that was one of his really powerful moments where you saw his faith and the rich tradition of the, the 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 church that he came from and so katie i think we might play a little clip of obama's sermon um at the funerals there, if we if we can. Sometimes it gets tricky here, but uh, we're gonna try to play this clip if it'll let us. That, in that, and he in that. was
1: singing that, that the, it sounded like, the voices sounded like a thunder roar that was gentle. Does that make sense? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because everybody in there was singing So you had all of these people, but it still had this gentle sweetness about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. Yeah. Mm. That day was a hard day because we had buried mama the day before.
0: Yeah.
1: And my daughter Asia didn't want to go. She said she was tired. And I did not want to miss Reverend Pinkney's funeral because actually his funeral, other than my mama's, was the only funeral I attended. Yeah. You know, uh, Sharonda Coleman, her funeral was the same day as my mother's funeral. So it's not like the families, it's not that we weren't supporting each other, but everybody was just in a state of shock. They just wanted to get past. Not that you know you didn't call them or anything cuz everybody was just trying to make it just trying yeah. to get through and with mama's funeral being the first one the media was crazy
0: yeah and and so you as you as you kind of make it through all of that there's so many complexities and you write really honestly about i, I felt like you did such a good job at showing how complicated it became for a i mean at one point you said maybe the place just needs to be a museum you know and and all the like navigating how to be faithful with the resources that were generated and all of that um but you also got you know these cards and i think that's where you first encountered lucy mcbath who has you know i've had the the incredible honor of of doing things uh, several events with her and she's been a soulmate for you but the first time you connected right was when you got a box of cards one right. of which was from her right who's she's yeah. now a senator uh, Uh, or representative right from Georgia and she's the mother of Jordan Davis who was killed in a a, a similar act of uh, racial terror that took her son's life in Florida. With the
1: Florida stay in your ground law. Yeah well the letter had went to the church and then it ended up to me in Dallas and because uh, it was had extra writing on the envelope it made me Kind of look and see what, what was happening and then I opened it I started reading it and she gave me her cell number and something you know when we say something then you know sneaky Jesus
2: sneaky That's Jesus what I
1: call sneaky Jesus said uh, call her and I called her mm-hmm. and she answered the phone and we had this conversation and we cried and you know she was working with uh every town then and there was no pitch
0: yeah for yeah. every
1: town it was just that one on one grief and pain of sisterhood yeah. together and um, then i called her another time and that's when she told me about every town and how the next thing you know uh, that happened in june that early september they were flying me to dc to speak yeah. and that started all of that working with every town Yeah. Yeah, and so
0: this begins kind of a whole new era of ministry, right? And this is what we're doing I was still working for the
1: hospital. And when they call me about it, I'm like, oh my God. So I went to my supervisor and said, hey, I need to take off. And she's looking at me like, well, you just got back. And I'm looking at her like, lady, (laughs) these people want me to fly to DC to talk about my mama. Uh, I was like, well, I know this is last minute, but i'm really needing to be at this uh, event
0: yeah and every time i'm with you i feel like you've <laughs> got this this sense of that was your calling then and you were fully present you gave it everything you got you walked with families in the trauma unit at parkland and then there it felt like there's a really as i read you know i read read it and i've heard you talk about it it felt like there's this clarity that that chapters was beautiful but there's something new happening and now you've had become really one of the prominent figures uh in, you know leading out of your own story but organizing folks we've beaten guns into plows together we've preached together and this is part of your ministry now right and it's it's gun violence but i also think it's still just the gospel right it's this this belief that love can heal the wounds and we need better policies but you're also always talking about the power of of forgiveness and of god's love i mean every time you preach it's the gospel that's you know dripping off your lips and so i am um, i'm so i don't know if you want to talk about what you're up to now but um i want to i want to talk a little bit in a minute about you know forgiveness because i know that's been a journey but you want to say anything more about what you're up to these days
1: well uh, you know what actually i'm not doing a whole lot of anything uh, I'm trying not to. Uh, I've had to kind of turn down some stuff because I'm in the mix of moving, and I've learned that I can't do a whole lot of stuff at one time. It, <laughs> it doesn't make sense. I, 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 you know, I got too much to do. So I gave myself permission Come to on. take the rest of the summer off. You know, for people like you, Shane, you because I love you. I, you know, it came up. I'm like, yeah, it's my brother. I'm gonna do this for my brother, but. Uh, <laughs>
0: <laughs> this Would you is say it. no to everybody else all <laughs> this
1: right this we'll is it. it this is it until the fall really i mean really i i need to take some time yeah. it's been you know six years six and a half yeah. years that i've been on this um sleep eat yeah gun violence yeah
0: now and I'm I, involved I like and- i like that you say no because i've seen you say no to a lot of people i mean i'm I'm real glad that you keep saying yes to me, although you can say no anytime you need to, but I-
1: It took me six years to get to that though.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It
1: did, I had to learn that in a really hard blessing that uh, I have the power to say no. I don't have to feel guilty when I say no. And I'm kind of liking that newfound power (laughs) I have of telling folks, no, thank you for the invitation. However, at this time,
0: <laughs>
1: I am not available.
0: There's a, there's a great scripture in the gospel where uh, Jesus is healing these people. You know, he goes off to pray and uh, the disciples are like, there's all these people that are here to see you. And he's like, then let's keep it moving. And he, ke- he moves right on <laughs> to another town, you know. Um, but, you know, let, let's just spend a few minutes on the forgiveness piece.
1: because you, you, you talk been, about a hard way. Yeah, but
0: you begin. I want to say this. You start with Nadine, you know, talking in court. And you said when she walks up to the podium in this moment that, you know, got all the cameras is you said, as she walked towards the podium, everybody looked at each other like, oh, hell, we don't know what is getting ready to come out of her mouth. Because honestly, we just never did know what our sister would say. And then she said, uh, addressing the, the, the murderer, I forgive you. You took something very precious away from me. I will never get to talk to her ever again, but I forgive you and have mercy on your soul. You hurt me. You hurt a lot of people. If God forgives you, I forgive you. And and yet what you invite us into in the book is that for you, you weren't in a place where you were ready to forgive and you, forgiveness is not a moment, uh, but it's been something that you've been figuring out and moving in. So every time you talk about it, it's so authentic. And it's part of, you know, some days you say, I don't feel like forgiving. And I think everybody needs to hear that. So I'll pass it on to you to talk a little bit about what you've learned about forgiveness and not the cheap forgiveness, but the real forgiveness that uh, you've said, not so he could sleep at night, but so that you could sleep at night and you could be free of the resentment and hatred that could hold you hostage.
1: Well, uh, one thing we know, and I know, that forgiveness is hard and complicated. Mm. There is no set pattern about how this thing is going to happen. Between uh, hearing everything that happened in that courtroom that day and trying to understand what would make my sister for once say it and then everybody else saying it because I'm looking like, wait a minute, we don't even know what really happened. And you're automatically forgiving. And here I was being judgeful. I really was because I'm saying to myself, now my sister, no, she ain't got Jesus like that. I mean, no, she ain't got Jesus like that. I, I, I got reverend and... Uh -uh. I don't think about, I got Jesus like that. Because Mm -hmm. at that point, you're not thinking of yourself as Jesus, Christian, nothing. You're thinking as a daughter of a person in shock that this horrific thing has happened, not only to your mother, but the eight other families and the survivors, how Felicia's granddaughter had to cover herself laying laying in the blood, Felicia Mm. covering her mouth so she wouldn't make a noise, all these things. Mm. Mm. So it was a lot of rage and anger, a lot of yelling and cussing at God, a lot of not wanting to get out the bed, and just a lot. Yeah. And when
0: we've done stuff around the death penalty, I think one of the things that's so important that we say over and over is that— being against the death penalty doesn't mean that we're against justice or that, that, that murder should not have consequences. Right. But it's saying that we refuse to answer violence on its own terms or to answer hatred on its own terms. And, you know, every time I've heard you speak, it's, we've got, you know, we've got to believe that God's love is bigger than, than that man, that young man's hatred. And, and, uh, and yet it needs consequences and, and forgiveness is a process. And there's a lot of cliches that we use like forgive and forget. But no, I think no, what you, you what, mean, what you, what you tell me- If something has caused
1: you trauma, right. if something has caused you trauma, you will never forget. Right. You yeah. know, my body start to go through some psychological, physiological things the week before June 17th. My body and my, my heart and my mind knows when certain events that have caused me trauma has happened because then I begin to feel yeah. that heaviness of whatever that was. So, But I had to get to the point after all of the wrestling with God to say, God, I got to get rid of what's holding me down i was not eating i was not sleeping i was like god what is it that i need to do and god kept saying i have forgiven you i love you the same way i love dylan Roof, even though dylan Roof did that yeah and the realization is that that's true god loved dylan roof just as much as he loved me it may be and i know from the power of god he could turn Dylan Roof around if that's what Dylan wants. Mm, mm. So, who am yeah. I to want him to die? I forgive you, little boy. Mm. Because of what God has put in me, not because of anything you have done. And if one day you do call on the name of Jesus, I'll be there, whatever clapping you on because that's what a child of god would do for anybody that come to jesus Mm. you would welcome them in the sister and brotherhood of christ Mm. so
0: Mm. Mm. i mean it, it really is scandalous you know to believe that uh and and to think that you you have the faith to hold out that hope, or the possibility even of that hope, um, and I, you know, I was reading Desmond Tutu where he says we don't forgive and forget; we forgive and remember, and that's actually the power. That's the power of it is that we're we're not. No one's trying to deny the evil that he did, but to say that there's some something bigger than that evil and that hatred, and even when we don't believe it, it's I want to believe. Help my unbelief,
1: <laughs> right? right. Yeah.
0: Reverend Michael, I see you over there, brother. I think we got a few minutes to wind up, but I didn't want to miss anything, man. If you're feeling, a, you want to you bring, bring us any last word as we land the plane here, brother?
2: It's been riveting just to hear the so two of powerful. you speak and particularly to hear Reverend Sharon's insights, which I have been privy to. Mm. And if there's anyone who's walking with a commitment to the call of God, to love your enemies, it certainly is Reverend Sharon Richard, which is an opportunity and challenge for all of us in the church who aspire to be more like Jesus. I will say, unfortunately, Reverend Sharon's voice is possibly more needed now than ever before. When you just look at what we have endured over the last several weeks, and, and certainly at the top of our mind, we think about what happened in Buffalo, mm-hmm. what has happened in Uvalde.
1: Right.
2: Yeah. Uh, but I have the opportunity, as did many, to uh, speak out uh, in DC as a part of the 24-7 um, filibuster for gun safety. And if memory serves me correctly, there are some 300, I believe, in 11 persons who are shot in America every day. Mm-hmm some 112 individuals who die of gun violence every day, including 12 children. And so while these uh, particularly heinous events from Buffalo to Charleston to Uvalde uh, to El Paso, Orlando, and so many other places in between, one of the things I wrote in uh, the forward to Sharon's book yeah, and I'll paraphrase it, but that is unfortunate, but we can usually tell time in America yeah. in terms of who's gotten shot and when. Mm-hmm. There's, so if it's a reference point, because it's so frequent on the calendar, whether it's news headlines or, or a singular family, uh, we have a problem in this nation with gun violence. Uh, it is a pandemic of pandemics. Mm-hmm and it has only increased during the coronavirus pandemic. And so Reverend Sharon is an intersection in her body. Yes. You know, of so many realities, of so many uh, testimonies, unfortunately, of violence, from sexual assault, to gun violence, to racial violence, to what she bore witness to as a chaplain. And so it, it, it calls us really in this very important moment to ask ourselves, mm. what will ultimately become of this nation? Mm. And what challenges and sacrifices are we willing to make mm-hmm. so that we can truly love our neighbor as ourself? Yeah. Mm. And so I've really been thinking a lot very recently about the words of Langston Hughes, a poem that he wrote and one of the portions of that poem is America will be, which suggests to me that all that we espouse ourselves to be as a nation, we certainly have a, not arrived at that point yet. There's persons like you, Brother Shane, Reverend Sharon, so many friends as a part of Red Letters Christians and beyond who are holding this nation to account and helping us to be much better than we have been. And so. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Again, I, I think her voice continues to be vital. I am so ecstatic that she's taking this moment of time for herself. She deserves yeah. it. She's given so much, and I'm grateful that she's given herself permission in this time to be restored and renewed for the journey ahead. But the only word I would say uh, in conclusion, Shane, as you well know and so many others know, we've just got much work to do.
0: Yeah, we do. Yeah. Uh,
2: our I children are depending upon us. You know, uh, our youngest daughter, after we were watching the news of Yavalde, she just turned to me, dad, and she was very honest. She said, I'm not sure that I want my older siblings to go to school tomorrow. Mm -hmm. And we had to wrestle with that very reality, that truth that there were young people all across this country who did not feel safe. Mm -hmm. And certainly we should do everything in our power to make sure that our children are protected whether at school or home, in the park, Mm -hmm. wherever they may be. And so this is our call. Mm -hmm. This is our mandate. This is our responsibility. And I'm grateful that we have persons like Reverend Sharon to lead us forward.
0: Amen. Amen. Thank you, brother. Well, y'all, it's the top of the hour and it has been a full hour. And thank you for saying yes, Reverend Sharon. And now take a break. Take care of yourself. At the end of the book, she talks about how humor and music have gotten her through. So, uh, and I found out in my three hour ride in the car with Reverend Sharon, that she's also part stand-up comedian. She's absolutely (laughs) a thrill to be with. Make sure y'all read the book for such a time as this. And I am so grateful sister, that the Lord has raised you up for such a time as this. And we're all better off with you, a part of uh, us at Red Letter Christians. So thank you. You got any Thanks closing words? I'll pray us out. But you got anything else you want to say, Reverend
1: Sharon? I, I, I just thank for for any person that took out the time to get on this uh thing Zoom tonight. I appreciate you being here. I love you, Mike and Shane, and God bless us. Like you said, we got lots of work to do. So it's not time to sit around and be armchair politicians. We gotta get real. Yep. So whatever it takes, if you could call or write letters, postcards, whatever it is, we gotta get with it. Let's do it, y'all. Really getting ready to get get with it. So we gotta get with it it too.
0: Yeah. That's it. All right, listen y'all, just two things real quick before we go. One of them is we do morning prayer every first of the month. So on July first, we're gonna have morning prayer with uh, Robbie Jones, who is a scholar on Christian nationalism and the danger of Christian nationalism. So join us on July 1st. We're going to pray, but then we'll have a half hour conversation about this um, uh, real uh, uh, nationalism that's trying to camouflage itself as Christianity and is an absolute threat to the democracy and a threat to real Christian faith. It's distorting our faith. So join us on July 1st, nine o'clock. And it's also uh, uh, almost the 4th of July. So all these principalities and powers are colliding. And so our book of the month for next month, you'll see it on our socials, is Waging Peace by Diana Ostrike, who's been a part of Red Letter Christians. She's a veteran who's turned peacemaker and denouncing militarism and war. So let's uh, read that book together, Waging Peace over the month of July. And y'all go give what you can, those of you that can give, because we always want to try to give our friends like Reverend Sharon uh, a gift just to say thank you for who they are and for all they're doing for the kingdom. So if you can give a financial gift and give it to us, if not, we're always gonna do everything for free anyway, yeah. but we just want you to hear from friends like Reverend Sharon. So I'll give you an Ethel Lance blessing tonight, right, Reverend Sharon? <laughs> Every man for himself and God, and God for, for us all. all. So <laughs> go in peace with God uh, rooting for you. All right, love you, you, sister.
1: Thanks a lot. Thank,
0: Thank you. you, Reverend Michael. See you, bye y'all. Bye.